place of revelation from God. It was the place of worship to God. It was the place of sacrifice to God. It was the very abode, the very place where God was. God dwelt there in the tabernacle, and in the incarnation, God dwells in the man Christ Jesus, in human flesh. We as Christians no longer look to a building. We look to the presence of God. We look, when we look to the presence of God, we look back onto the man Christ Jesus. This is what makes Christianity so radically different than any other religion. And no other religious system has as its founder God in the flesh. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, they're all merely men claiming to have received words of wisdom or truths from God. They are not themselves the embodiment of truth. They are not themselves God in the flesh. Secular humanism, what's plaguing our day, wants you to recognize God as your, your own God in the flesh. You are most important. The incarnation is the most essential truth, and it's essential to Christianity because it makes the most radical claim about our faith. To believe that God, timeless and spaceless, stepped into time and space, is itself blasphemy in other religious systems. That's the amazing thing. But the amazing thing is we don't simply believe that God became man because it makes us feel good. We believe it because God has always intended to dwell with his people, becoming like his people, dying on the cross, being raised from the grave, allows us to dwell with him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that our flesh could be redeemed and we could dwell with God. God dwelt on earth as one of us, as a human, so that we might dwell with him in heaven. That's the most radical claim of Christianity, that God is not at the top of a mountain waiting for us to traverse our way up, but that he came down the mountain himself to bring us up. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you'll consider that claim. Why do we gather on Sunday morning after Sunday morning to worship the man, Christ Jesus? Because he was no ordinary man. He is God in the flesh who lived and died and was raised from the grave as the sacrifice for our sins. For those of us here who are Christians, this verse is so very encouraging for us. God became flesh, took on human form so that he could redeem humanity. An important aspect of this text that we have to understand, God became fully flesh. Maybe you've heard the phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Throughout church history, uh, heresy has been the mother of orthodoxy. The Christians have been faced with things that they understood not to be true, and then they have come together to make statements or to formulate, how is it that this is not true? It's because of this. The earliest Christians struggled with these heretical thoughts of who the God-man was, who it was that Jesus, and they, they, some struggled to put it into words, and some struggled so much they set themselves into heresy and debates had to be had. The earliest Christians did most of the fighting on the Trinity that we now stand on. We stand on the shoulder of very early giants. We know and affirm doctrines like the Trinity because of what they did, who they had to fight against. Things like the Nicene Creed were formulated to specifically target heresies that spoke of the man Christ Jesus as either not being fully God or not being fully man. One of the earliest forms of these was called docetism. Very even probably at the time of the New Testament, they were struggling with these Gnostics who believed in docetism. It comes from the word to appear. This was the position that Jesus Christ was fully God. He just appeared to be a man. He wasn't really in the flesh as he walked on the earth. But they, these early Christians looked to John 1.14 and texts like it and said, no, the word became flesh. He had to have become flesh. There was a later heresy, uh, adoptionism, goes by other names, that it basically took up the, the, the idea that he was fully human, but he was not fully God. 
that Jesus was a very righteous man, lived a very righteous life, so much so that God said, I adopt you as my son. But this text says, the word became flesh. He was more than just man. Arianism is a form of that, and it's probably the well-known among the bunch. It's what led to the Nicene Creed, the council at Nicaea. It's probably also the one that still rules and reigns here in South Carolina and the Bible Belt. Arianism said that Jesus Christ was God's first and most glorious creation. In Arianism, Jesus is not equal to the Father because he's not God in the way that we understand the Trinity. Arianism is well known because of that Nicene Creed. Constantine is emperor. Christianity is the religion of the day. And they're having these debates over who the God-man Jesus Christ is. So he calls together the first council in the year 325 to hash this out. The Nicene Creed stated, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. You can hear those notes of things that we stand on, truths we stand on today. Or as my favorite Christmas hymn puts it, Christ, by highest heaven adorned, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Arianism taught that Christ was of similar essence to the Father, but not the same. This is the view that Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses hold to today. You can hear now why we as Christians must be prepared to stand against these things with texts like John 1.14, a foundational text for the church. If Jesus Christ did not come as both fully God and fully man, then mankind, humanity, could not be fully redeemed. If Jesus did not take on body, mind, and soul, then our bodies, minds, and soul could not all be fully redeemed. It's very important for us to understand this, get our theology right. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, it's also so motivating for us to follow the man Christ Jesus. The incarnation is the motivation that you and I need to make it through this life. You may be coming here this morning, Sunday morning, beaten and battered and bruised from a, a hard work week, a life in a fallen world, surrounded by those who do not know Christ, faced with your own sin, and you come in this morning looking for a reason. Give me a reason to keep going. Give me the motivation I need to press on. Look to the holy God who stepped into time. He existed in paradise stepped himself into a fallen world. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is it like to walk a day in someone else's shoes? Jesus Christ took on flesh, stepped into time, walked years in the shoes of humans who live in fallen worlds. And the writer of Hebrews said, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you're looking for motivation to pilgrim on in this world, look to Jesus who can sympathize in every way with you. The incarnation is the ultimate act of humility, but it is no less glorious. That's how John ends verse 14. Look with me. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John and others were eyewitnesses to the glory of the Lord because they saw the incarnate Jesus. John wants us to understand the God of the universe became lowly like humans, and this was indeed a glorious event. Jesus is the glorious Son, second person of the Trinity. The one and only Son, unique language. John's making a point. There's none like him. The Son in the flesh had the same glory as Yahweh who dwelt in the temple, the tabernacle. Everything glorious about God is found in the man, Jesus. And John finishes this verse by saying he is full of grace and truth. This is the prologue. John's laying down foundations. Grace and truth are important themes as you read John's gospel. Jesus is the place of grace as the tabernacle was the place of God's grace. Jesus is the place of God's truth as the tabernacle was the place of God's truth. For Israel, the tabernacle was the center of worship. We gather this morning making Jesus Christ the center of our worship. As God in the flesh, he is our redeemer. He is our truth. He is our once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. We look onto him and we see God himself. Jesus Christ is the unique son, the second person of the Trinity who alone could fix our sin problem. He was the fullness of God, the glory of God, the embodiment of grace and truth. He's the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the center of our worship. Leads us right to our second point. The incarnation fulfills the prophets. The incarnation fulfills the prophets. Look with me at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Apostle, writing this gospel, now makes a parenthetical note about John the Baptist. Again, this is a summary of things already said. Verse 6, if you look up just a few verses from where we are, verse 6 of chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the Lord himself to come. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. Matthew will say this is a fulfillment of this in John the Baptist. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist was the one to prepare the way for Jesus, God in the flesh, Yahweh in the flesh, to come to his people. This text says John cried out. This one of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. It's an intentional play on words. John the Baptist was older than Jesus. Uh, pregnant Mary comes to Elizabeth, who was pregnant before her. John the Baptist leaps in the womb. Uh, John recognizes, though I might be older, he has come before me. John understood who he was and who Jesus was very plainly. John the Baptist was just another in the long line of Old Testament prophets. This is what many, many scholars will say John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. You can scan your table of contents and see the names of men in the Old Testament who were prophets chosen by God, called by God to speak to God's people. They were given a message. Each prophet was given a very clear message. Israel has sinned. They need a Savior. The people need a Savior. John's message wasn't unique. Isaiah prophesied very famously the Messiah would come as a suffering servant. He would be 
like a lamb led to slaughter. He would be pierced for our transgressions. God would raise him from the grave as an offering for our sins. Jeremiah prophesied of a new covenant that would come with his people. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. The new covenant would come by the Lord himself taking on flesh, taking on the sins of his people. The Lord himself would come and mediate the new covenant. He would forgive their sins because he himself would pay for them on the cross. John knew that this was coming. John knew that he was the last one, that he would see, he would be preparing the way and he would see the one who had, they, they had been long waiting for. The time had finally come. John's message was not unique. This should be very comforting for us. The prophets, each one of them had a message that was not unique to themselves. Each one of them was given words directly from God, those words all together being put together to be the message of God that he was sending them a Messiah, a Savior. Like pieces of a puzzle, each prophet works together to give us an image of the one who is coming, the man Jesus. And John the Baptist, placing in that last piece of the puzzle, says, he is here. He is coming right after me. Now, we don't have a unique message in the year 2023. The prophets, they spoke, they pointed forward to the Messiah. We simply point backward. The Messiah came. You don't have to make it up. When we do evangelism like we even did just yesterday among our neighborhoods here around the church, John didn't have a unique message. You don't have to have a unique message. Jesus said, sorry, John said that there was one coming after him greater than him. That is Jesus. We say that the man Jesus came before us. He's greater than us. He came. He existed. We don't have a unique message this year. We don't need a unique message this year or any year. We may encounter new opponents, new challenges in an increasingly secularizing culture and city, but we do not need a new message or a new messiah. Jesus said there was none greater in heaven than John the Baptist, and John the Baptist preached the same old message. Jesus is coming. Don't look to me. Look to the one who comes after me, who ranks before me. If you get overwhelmed at the prospect of evangelism, just know you don't have to write the playbook on it. Oh, you're running the same offense this team's been running for years, and it has been working for a long time. It's an incredible comfort to my soul. The word, the logos, came after John, but he was before John. God himself in the flesh to die for uh, our sins was the message that John proclaimed. All the prophets looked forward to the Messiah. Here he is. When the word became flesh, he fulfilled all the prophets had spoken about, and he, bought, and he brought grace upon grace, which leads us right to our third point. The incarnation fulfills the law. The incarnation fulfills the law. Look with me at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 17 helps us understand verse 16. John is saying that through Christ's fullness we have received grace. This is an extension of what he's already said, that when Christ came in the incarnation, he came with the glory of God. Colossians 1 says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And the writer of Hebrews said he radiated the glory of God 
the exact, he was the exact imprint of his nature. That's the idea we're getting at when he says uh, his fullness. We have seen his fullness. Jesus Christ had the fullness of the glory of God in the incarnation. Uh, the fullness of God was present. He radiated the glory of God. And John says here that he brought grace upon grace. There's basically two ways of understanding this idea of grace upon grace. The first is that is the idea of addition, that when Jesus came, he brought grace that was added to the grace of the law that was given to Israel. The second is more of a replacement, a betterness, that Jesus Christ came and he replaced the grace of the law by giving a better, more full grace. Your translation might render this actually grace in place of grace, which I think is good. I hold to the second, that when Jesus came, he, re he replaced with a better grace than the grace of the law. I think that becomes clearer when you just look to the next verse, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John's helping us understand. Jesus Christ brought a better grace than was the law. The law was given as a temporary grace with the expectation of a better grace to come. We saw a moment ago in Jeremiah 31, the expectation was set that there would be a day when a new and better covenant would be made with Israel or with God's people from the inside out. The incarnation brought that grace. Moses brought the law. Christ brings grace and truth. John is not saying that the law is neither grace nor is it true. He's, these are themes that he's drawing out in the man, Christ Jesus. Grace and truth are these themes. Grace did not begin at the incarnation, but it finds its fulfillment in the incarnation, God himself stepping into time. You probably know Luke 24, that, that Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, these are my words that I spoke to you that while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The law was given to Israel to show them their sin. To give them a righteous laws to follow in the, present, in the land and point outsiders and themselves to the perfection of the God they follow. The Jews were longing for, though, a Messiah who would come and fulfill the law. Be a redeemer for them like Moses. When Jesus came in the flesh, he, he perfectly fulfilled this law. The law required righteousness that we could not live up to and cannot live up to, but the man, Jesus Christ, did. He fulfilled the law perfectly, righteously, living a perfect life. We're about to enter Easter in just a few weeks. It's really important for us as Christians, I think, when we look at texts like these, to not skip directly from Christmas to Easter when we think about the man, Jesus Christ. We're about to celebrate Holy Week, the passion, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, but he lived a perfect life in between. Don't open, you know, uh, Luke 1 and then skip directly to Luke 21. Understand what the man Jesus did when he lived perfectly, fulfilling the righteousness that the law required, to then die in place for you who have not lived perfectly to fulfill that righteousness that the law requires. He did this for us. The righteous life, the second person of the Trinity in the flesh, perfectly fulfilled the law and has given us grace upon grace. The incarnation is so vitally important to our faith. God became a man to die for our sins. God became a man so that man could be right with God, live in perfect fellowship with God, which leads us right to our fourth and final point. The incarnation fulfills God's purposes in creation. The incarnation fulfills God's purposes in creation. Look with me at our final verse, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side has made him known. This verse wraps up the entire prologue quite nicely. Everything about the word, the logos, has been building to this statement. 
The Lagos is eternal, creator, one with God, God himself, light and life, the message of the prophets, the, the fulfillment of the law, God incarnate in flesh, because no one has seen God, but he makes God known to the world. Throughout the Bible, people get glimpses of God. Moses saw visions of God, glimpses of God. God told Moses plainly in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face. Man shall not look on me and live. In the Old Testament, men like Moses saw glimpses of into God, but they did not see fully God because they could not. God cannot dwell among sinners. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to be God in the flesh so that sinners could see God and know God. The incarnation reveals God to his people. This is what the writer of Hebrews said about speaking, that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Not just Jesus' words, but his life, his ministry, who he very was, was God speaking to us. The word was with God and is God, and he reveals God. Many think they know God. Many think they have seen God. Not by the way that they think they've seen UFOs or Elvis, but many people think that they know and see God because they live a moral life, because they know some idea of God in the universe. They feel that there's something that's created everything. They feel they know him enough. Those who don't know Jesus, they think that the reality of the universe is whatever they make it to be. Humanism wants you, wants us to know that, that we, we don't need to see God. We are ourselves God. Secularism, secularism tells us, you, if you've looked in the mirror, you've seen the chief most important aspect of reality. That's not true. The truth is that God exists, but you and I have not seen him. You cannot see him. You and I have looked around creation and have seen his work. But we have suppressed that truth, the truth that God has created all these things. And you may be here this morning right now suppressing that truth, the truth of this text this morning. Hear me. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you have not seen God, but you can see God. You haven't even begun to taste the fullness of reality if you do not know this man, Jesus, who is the fullness of God's reality in the flesh. You may know the story of Plato's cave, men and women blind, grasping for light to try and understand the truth. Jesus is the one who comes into the cave and says, if you see me, you have seen the truth. John 14, Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is, <laughs> and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to see God, you want to know God, open your Bible, look to the man Jesus. God has revealed himself by his Son, the eternal Word, who is the second person of the Trinity. That Son took on flesh and shows us God. No one has seen God, but if you want to see God, look to the Son who reveals him. Here, John provides one of the clearest statements of Jesus' deity in the entire Bible. God, the only God who is at the Father's side. This is Jesus Christ. He is God with God, the very word who was with God in verse 1 that we studied last week. He's uniquely God, equal with the Father, yet distinctly another person. And now in the incarnation, God has made himself known to his people by that God, the only God, in the incarnation, fulfilling his purposes in creation. Because his purpose was to create a people that would bring him praise and honor and glory for all eternity. But we have rebelled. Adam and Eve, like them, in the garden, we have sinned against God, and we sit under God's wrath, ready to be sent to hell for eternal punishment. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they lived in the garden 
with God. God walked among them. He was pleased to dwell with them, but they sinned. They had to be cast out from his presence. The garden was shut. And, then, and now we live under the curse of that sin. But by God's grace, we can come back into fellowship with God. Because of the incarnation, we can be saved from our sins. Because God became a man and died the death that we deserved on the cross. We can be saved. We can be brought back into good standing with God. This offer is free to all. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I wonder if you'll consider this. I wonder if you'll hear me. We want to be with you in heaven. Jesus Christ lived and died on this earth in a body of flesh that, so that you could dwell with him in paradise. Come to Christ. He came to earth so that you could come to him. Christian, remember why Jesus took on flesh. He did so because we could not get ourselves to heaven. We, we could not be with the Father. We live, he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we so deserved so that we could be with him in heaven. If you've trusted in Christ, that's your destiny. Look forward to your heavenly home. The word became flesh and dwelt among men so that men might become like him in his righteousness and dwell with God again in perfect harmony. John, this same John, had, the, had this vision of heaven. He turned there uh, with me to Revelation 21. John, near the end of his life, has this vision of heaven. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven with God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall they be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God desires that you dwell with him in heaven. He made a way for all to have their tears wiped away, their pain removed, their crying to cease, their mourning to end, and there to be no more death. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could become like him in his righteousness and dwell with God forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths eternal, that from eternity past you desired to have a people that would bring you praise and honor and glory, that your son would come and live amongst them in flesh and die for our sins. Father, I pray that we would look forward this morning to our heavenly dwelling, that we will be with you again, and you will walk amongst us again. We will see you face to face. Father, I pray for anyone here who does not know this truth, does not know this truth of reality, that God in flesh came and lived, that they would come to know Christ, that your spirit would move in them. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.